Hello everyone, Simon here. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Good to have you with us. Just a few short comments before all the normal intro and music kicks in. Um, first of all, just a warning, the first issue we discuss is a recent school shooting in the USA. Um, so you may uh, wish to listen to it or you may wish to skip past uh, that part. Um, secondly, I'm afraid there were some problems which we all had with the internet and also my laptop. Um, so every so often you'll hear lots of pings, which is Microsoft alerting to me to things going on with my laptop, such as my microphone not working, which actually was untrue. Um, and I couldn't get rid of those in the edit. So apologies if that spoils your listening experience. There aren't too many of them, but there's the odd one or two. Um, and thirdly, uh, we're recording this on 26th of May. It may be that I don't do an episode in the first few days of June um, because of things going on uh, in my personal life and places I need to be. Um, but we will be back for three or four episodes through June. Uh, this is quite a longish episode, so I hope it will sustain you uh, until we record again. And now here's a normal introduction. This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday the 26th of May. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue with intense fighting in the Donbass region. The civil servant Sue Gray published her report into Partygate and the BBC was passed a huge cache of secretive files detailing the extent of incarceration of the Uyghur people by the Chinese state. This week we'll be thinking about gun violence, debates in the UK Parliament about conversion therapy and the category of non-binary, and we'll be thinking about both Partygate in number 10 and a party for the Labour Party in Australia. We'll also see what else we get on to. In fact, there's so much news to report nowadays, these headlines just now could easily have been very different. Things seem to be getting grimmer and more depressing week by week. Which, of course, brings me to this week's guests. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad to say we've got uh, three returners this week. First of all, Sophie Grace Chapel, Professor at the Open University. Hi, Sophie Grace. Hello. Back um, for another run, and he was here for our very first episode, Vittorio Bufaki, Senior Lecturer at University College Cork. Hi, Vittorio. Hello from Ireland. And Chris Henry, who's a political philosopher from here at the University of Kent. Hi, Chris. Hello, nice to be back. Uh, great to have all three of you uh, with us. Okay, so let's get to um, our first discussion. The last couple of days has seen yet another school shooting in the USA, this time at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, leaving students and teachers uh, dead. I understand this is the 27th school shooting in the US this year, and of course, it's only at the end of May. Um, Victoria, you've thought uh, about violence and, and gun violence in your academic career. Do you want to introduce this item for us? Yes. So it is arguably the most depressing topic 
that we could be discussing, partly because the reaction that I had when I read the news, and I think it's the reaction that most people had, it was not again. And I think that's telling because we have come to expect mass shooting in America, especially in schools, on a fairly regular basis. And I think there is something revealing about this statistical expectation uh, for mass shootings in America. So thinking about this event philosophically, the first thing that comes to mind is that America is very close from being um, a failed state. And this is the conception of the state that I, I, I take from Thomas Hobbes, um, which I think should be compulsory reading in America, but perhaps everywhere in the world. And the basic idea um, in the Leviathan is that the state has one central responsibility, and that's to protect the citizens' lives. And the American state is not doing it because it has been usurped by the gun lobby. And so when the sovereign is unable to provide the safety of its people, we have a return to the state of nature. And that is, that's quite frightening. So I think there are three failures um, worth analyzing in terms of what it means for America to be a failed state. I think there's a failure to understand the true meaning of freedom, because this is part of the debate, of course. So <clears throat> the Second Amendment, you have to allow people to carry guns, which is such an unsophisticated conception of freedom. It's, it's almost like just the appearance of freedom. Um, it's, it's the freedom that we have in the state of nature, the freedom to kill and be killed. And as, as John Locke said, um, well, it may be a state of liberty, but it's not a state of license. And the fact that in America, which is all about freedom, they have such a simplistic conception of freedom is, is really uh, worrying. So the second failure <clears throat> is about the rather unsophisticated conception of freedom that is being discussed at the moment in America, which has to do with the Second Amendment. It, it seems to me that this is merely the freedom that we have in a Hobbesian state of nature, uh, which only has the appearance of freedom. Um, it's the freedom to kill and be killed. And of course, you know, e even John Locke in the Second Treatise um, points out how unsophisticated that is. You know, he says the state of nature is a state of liberty, but it's not or should not be a state of license. Two other failures um, worth discussing. Um, one is a failure of human rights. Um, there's a human rights violation here. Even though the United States did not sign up to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 19 of this convention says all appropriate legislative administrative, social, and educational measures should be made to protect the child from all forms of physical and mental violence, injury, or abuse. The fact that we have recurrent mass shootings in America suggests that the human rights of the child in America is being violated, and not enough is being done to stop this from happening. And this takes us to another failure, which is actually the way that people think about violence. So there is this idea that violence is exclusively in the form of a direct action that causes harm. But in fact, 
violence is much more sophisticated than that. And there's a lot more to violence than direct actions that cause harm. Um, so, of course, a punch is an act of violence, but so is neglect. And we often forget that violence can take the form of an omission as well as an action. And so in terms of the discussion we are having at the moment in America, we should be thinking about what is not being done. So it's not introducing gun control that is contributing to the violence, which is contributing to the human rights um, abuses in America. And it's also contributing to this very unsophisticated conception of freedom. And so I, I, I think we need to rethink what violence is and emphasize the omissions and not only the actions, because all those things are actually highlighting how the American state is, is a failed state or approaching a failed state. Chris, so if you've got, I mean, I've got loads of things to say about what Vittorio just uh, articulated, but have you got anything to say first of all? Well, I think the difficulties in America illustrate a lot of things. So one of the things that I find myself saying about them is Private Fraser in the, the British comedy series Dad's Army. There's this dour, wild-eyed Scottish member of the, the local militia protecting the town of Shoreham-on-Sea during the war. And Private Fraser's catchphrase, as you may or may not know, was, we're doomed, we're doomed. At any setback, that was his response. And I'm afraid the events in America and lots of other events that are going on do give me this feeling that Vittorio has been expressing too, that we are witnessing very serious breakdowns in our social structure and in the social structure of the West in general. I've never felt more pessimistic about the future of humanity than I do right now, I'm afraid. What's going on in America, I think, illustrates a lot of points about the social breakdown that Vittorio is talking about. I think one thing it also illustrates is that often rational arguments, words on paper, propositions are not enough. We have rational arguments. We have written constitutions. And a lot of people are very keen on Britons getting a written constitution. And I'm always very sceptical about that. There are a lot of deeply corrupt states that do have constitutions, and there are quite a few very civilised and reasonable states, New Zealand, for example, um, that do not have a written constitution in any very advanced form. Or one would, one would like to say the UK, although one has doubts about that at times. So having a constitution doesn't guarantee anything good. And in the US... It's been a major stumbling block for guns, gun reform that there is the Second Amendment, the one of the leading items of the Bill of Rights. We can argue about it endlessly. What what the founding fathers meant when they written when they wrote that in the Constitution? How much we are bound by their intentions? How much we're bound by their actual words rather than their intentions? There's a whole industry of debating these matters in America. But what I come back to is this: for a society to function well. We don't just need propositional arguments winning the case, because the propositional arguments, I think, in the case of gun control are overwhelmingly, overwhelming and obvious in favour, overwhelmingly in, in favour of control and, you know, limiting this, this crazy, horrible madness by whatever means necessary to stop it. That's how the rational arguments go. But we need something more than those propositional arguments, what I call the come off it factor what you might also call the appeal to shame. 
where you have a society which is losing its sense of shame, so you can show that the position is absurd and contradictory on a rational basis, but people don't care that their position is absurd and contradictory, and they just plow on regardless, then we're in deep, deep trouble. And I'm afraid I think we are in precisely that kind of trouble. It's not just it's not just a problem that can be sorted with rational arguments against it. People need to be ashamed of what's going on. People need to say, well, um, you know, we, we can't carry on like this. We, we have to respond to the rational arguments that are being confronted, that we're being confronted with. And until people do that, uh, so long as people are happy to live in this know-nothing way, then we're going to c- carry on being in trouble. So you can see that kind of appeal to shame, if you like, if you're not a cognitivist in ethics, or if you have a narrow conception of what cognitivism is or realism is, then you can see that as the the affective element, the emotive element, the non-propositional, the non-realistic element in ethics. I'm, I have a broad conception of realism. I, I think the come-off-it appeal is a kind of realist appeal, but we can argue about that separately. The, the primary thing, the first thing, is just to protect innocent people from rampaging maniacs. And in America, they're simply not doing that now. Chris? There's a lot to think about. Um, I mean, I I must admit that um, I'm not familiar with sort of ethics. I, I'm I work in continental philosophy, so I I don't know what this this principle is or the how you're sort of articulating different forms of shame. There, I'd be quite interested to to hear what, more about what you have to say. I guess it got me thinking not so much about people being made to feel shameful for their acts, but my mind immediately went to the concept of anomie. Right. And the extent to which uh, really since Trump and probably since the 1980s, surely the concept of anime uh, characterizes any form of social breakdown in, um, in, in the States. So to just expand on that, I guess it seems pretty clear that Americans or a large number of Americans, working class Americans, people in the Rust Belt, increasingly, you know, older white men, in the states do not feel like they have a state a stake in the society whether or not they actually do sort of relative to other groups in 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 the states and so the sort of perspective that they don't have a stake in society in the society that they grew up and in which they felt like they had a part leads them to Uh, Well, I guess combined with the fact that they don't feel that they have the possibility to change the environment in which they've grown up and which in in which they feel alienated from leads them to sort of kick out in some pretty bizarre ways. Now, what I'm trying to do is I I hope is is not excuse some of the actions. Right. Obviously, the murder of children in schools is is abhorrent. But I, I do think that it's important to understand the motivation behind it. So I don't know, just to sort of push back, maybe I hope productively Sophie Grace against against an idea of shame which I think maybe in my naive understanding of it sort of applied more broadly around society wouldn't be too helpful but in for me the sort of solution would be on the one hand yes gun control reform is is would, would be helpful but as a more sort of thorough solution would be to try and group together and reinstate some form of the social or the socius in, in into America. I couldn't agree more, Chris. And there's this thing that keeps happening to me as an analytic philosopher, which is that I I try and articulate a concept that I think is new. And it's true that analytic philosophers like me have not been talking about it enough. And then somebody with more background than I have in continental philosophy comes along and reveals that continental philosophers have already been discussing this for decades. And actually, you, you mentioned 
the concept of anomie, which is the French version of the, the Greek word anomia, lawlessness, that concept, which I, I believe is a, a Durkheim concept, is exactly the concept that I'm groping for here. So, so thank you. You've helped me by, by showing me that that concept's there. And I, I must go off and read more Durkheim. That's obvious. But I mean, we're, we're totally agreeing, Chris, because what I'm saying is we need an environment like the environment where Socrates is debating the sophists, where it is possible for someone to be put to shame. The Greek is elenchthai, to be subjected to an elenchus. It's a shameful thing to be defeated in argument for Protagoras or Callicles or whoever Socrates is talking about. And actually, that's great. Actually, that's wonderful that it's possible for them to be ashamed because, you know, we're in a situation of pigeon chess now. People don't care if they're losing the game. They just shit on the board and throw it out of the window. And if things were better, then people would be ashamed when they're getting things wrong in the argument. People would be ashamed that they're saying things that are ridiculous and absurd, but they're not ashamed. Trump is speaking at the NRA conference in a week or two. The man is utterly shameless. And that's our problem. Anomie. Yeah, the language that is used every time there is a shooting in America, um, especially in schools, is one of evil. That people always refer to this is evil, the person was evil. And it's such a convenient concept because it explains everything on one side. And it also means that no one is, is responsible, really, except this evil person. And it also justifies the fact that you have to fight evil. And so you have to be armed <clears throat> to fight evil. There isn't even the start of a conversation about social responsibility. It's just looking for a scapegoat, someone who's evil. Um, there is also talk about mental illness. And these are... The assumption here is that everything is fine and occasionally you just have something that is out of the norm and you can't predict it, you can't stop it, and you just have to endure it as such. And I don't, I, yeah, again, it's it's um, it's a not a helpful concept. There was a film with Michael Moore, um, Fahrenheit 411 or whatever it's called, about gun violence in America. And one of the points that Michael Moore makes is that although America's laws on gun control are pretty shocking. There are plenty of other countries with almost comparably shocking, shockingly um, permissive laws about gun control where there isn't this kind of rampage of violence. And the problem then is, I mean, for sure, it's partly the law, but it's not just the law. The problem is also the socialization of people, the way people behave in society, which with both Chris and Vittorio have already been talking about. And that's surely right. So what we need is a society where people are shaped not to be like that, not to reach for violence, not to choose mowing down innocent people and shooting themselves as a solution to a fit of depression. So what we need is, and of course, it's immensely self-serving for me as a professor of philosophy to say this, but what we need is education. That is literally the truth. We need better inculturation of young people. We need young people to be included and not alienated. And that is an educational task. And the way that America treats education as, as such a low-grade job, you know, it's, it's barely a step up from working in Wendy's or McDonald's. And actually, all respect to people who work in Wendy's and McDonald's, it's not an easy job. It's not a skillless job. But education is central to a good society because people need to be made part of the culture. And that isn't happening. And there is a horrible, I, I don't think it's accidental, but I think there's a horrible irony in the way that so often it is schools that are targeted 
by these mass shooters or, or universities. They pick those places. And that fits exactly because it's a wave of hatred and know-nothingness that is engulfing America. I was just going to say, if, if this podcast has done only one thing, although it hasn't, it's to, to maybe start to bridge the gap between continental and analytic philosophy, because I, I constantly, constantly find myself embarrassed by my analytic colleagues who seem to know much more about the world and specific concepts than I actually do. So <laughs> I think that's really interesting. But to maybe bring it back to the the, the concept of, of, of freedom that Vittorio sort of in- introduced, I think Vittorio is absolutely right about it's a very poor understanding of freedom, that the sort of definition of freedom that, that draws me is the existentialist one, whereby you have the freedom to decide the rules to which you follow. And s- sort of trying to combine anime with, with this slightly richer concept of freedom, uh, an, an America which begins to sort of have more confidence in its ability to sort of discuss with each other the rules by which they should live rather than sort of reject any kind of socialized or heaven forbid top-down form of decision-making process might actually embolden individuals to feel more free the country you know that that might be a political route through leveraging the concept of freedom which is a concept that comes out of the sort of frontier society that formed the the, the, the basis of you know, Europeanized America, and not to have to reject the concept completely, but perhaps tweak it to s- start saying, eh, you know, you, you can you can be free, but what do you really mean by free? Because of course, if you're free from from everything, then you have nothing, um, which seems to be a fairly you know impoverished condition to live one's life in. In in a sense, we get back here to the famous distinction um, that you find in Popper and Berlin between positive and negative freedom, between freedom to and freedom from. And it's not enough just to have freedom from restraints, constraints. We also need people who are free to do the good things, the right things, the creative things. And I I mean freedom quite literally here. People who are in the grip of addiction, for example, to drugs or alcohol or gambling, are not free to do the things that would make them happy. They can't because their addictions stop them. Their addictions destroy their marriage. Their addictions lead them into uh, theft, for which they get slung into prison, their addictions break their lives, and they are not free to live well. And what I keep coming back to in this discussion is a kind of terrible sense of running out of time, because education, like virtue, is a really slow, gradual, organic progress. It's like process. It's like growing a tree. It takes at least 20 years to inculcate, inculturate someone in the good ways that they need to be enculturated if they're going to live well in our society. It takes 20 seconds to mow down a classroom of children. And it it feels at this point like it's an unfair fight. We're trying to grow a forest. And yeah, well, this is literally happening as well. I'm using it as a metaphor, but this is literally happening too. We're trying to grow a forest and that takes time and space. And maniacs are moving in and mowing it down before we can get anywhere. And it's, it's heartbreaking. At the risk of seeming distasteful, maybe offer a slightly more rosy-tinted view of the current sort of historical moment. And I, I say distasteful because, you know, what just happened in America and the sort of topic is is, is awful. But we're living in a, in, a, in a period of time that's just come after, you know, an overwe- a huge period of reform, social values and civic rights in, in America. And to a certain extent, the people who are committing 
crimes like these and acts like these have to be set, I think, against that. So that the breakdown of, of social bonds, of course, is not felt by a vast majority of, of people in the United States. So I mean, and broadly, the people who the civic rights movement uh, benefited. The people who are committing these crimes are dispossessed, broadly white, broadly Christian, male uh, individuals. And I see this breakdown, uh, and these are the exactly the sorts of people who on the whole supported Donald Trump, although of course not exclusively. And so I see this as a sort of reaction against the, the, the civil rights movement and the tremendous increase in standard of living, in life expectancy, in expectance that they will live a, a natural life that, that came with those movements. So I don't see, I don't see this as an, a sort of a, a downward slide to a moment of sort of chaos. I sort of take see this in, in the light of uh, what a lot of people in, who write on like the Anthropocene start to uh, just frame this as. It's like, okay, so imagine if we're not at the moment coming to the end of the world, but like, let's imagine that the end of the world has already happened. Okay, so we've already seen the breakdown of the environment. We've already seen like huge numbers of, of deaths at the hands of racists and bigots and things like that. And now we're sort of seeing our, our construction out of this. Um, well, if we frame it like that, we're obviously going to see some reaction against this moment by people who the former regime suited, broadly the Trumps, broadly people, when they start to feel like they no longer have any say in society. And we might argue quite rightly, right, because the world in which they hark back to was a racist and a bigoted and a, and a, and a pretty, pretty nasty one. Then they're going to kick out uh, about it. And, and the task then is to sort of integrate these people into a society, and as again, as distasteful as that might be, help them feel like actually the society in which they now live that is changing around them isn't one that is set diametrically opposite to them, but is actually one which wants to hold out a hand to them. Uh, but of course, they have to reciprocate at the same time. Yes, I, I think I think Chris's line is that things are already getting better. A less optimistic line would be things are going to get worse before they get better. I'm, I'm afraid my position at the moment is things are getting worse with a side order of why on earth do we think that we have some kind of natural entitlement to things being good? What makes us suppose that the way things have been in Western liberal democracies since, well, roughly my life, my lifetime, since about 1960, what on earth makes us suppose that that kind of situation is sustainable without a real fight? We take it as the natural order of things. We're outraged when things transgress that kind of boundary. When, for example, our rights to free speech are curtailed, we're outraged and we take it as a move against the natural order of things. But I'm afraid, surely what history teaches us is that democracy, liberal democracy, is exceptional and tyranny and chaos is the norm. I'm sorry, I'm in a very dark mood this morning, but I, I do think that's what history teaches us. And that if we want liberal democracy, if we want humane, humane standards and flourishing humanity, which I, I fervently do, then we're going to have to fight for it, perhaps literally. So here's a here's then the, the thought on that. So a thought that often goes around my head as someone who's a, a very, I haven't lived in America for any length of time, but of course I've visited a, a, many times and I have many friends in America. And so I say this as someone with, you know, watches these news stories with fear, and mix a mixture of fury and despair and, and, and a certain amount of uh, amusement, right? I mean, why, why, 
on earth can't things be done? But of course, we know why they can't be done. There's a very powerful gun lobby, very powerful politicians. There's, there's vested interests. They're backed with lots of money and so on. So in a way, I've often thought, you know, that if I was a, if I was a politician in America, you know, how, what, what the strategy would be? How would one go about changing the society, particularly when, when it comes to, to, to gun violence? And actually, that's quite a tricky one to think through because you could say, let's, you know, people say, let's ban guns. I mean, if you ban guns just like that, then, of course, the, the likely if you had like some amnesty or something is that well-meaning good people have been frightened and perhaps keeping a gun in their house would return it but everyone would be worried they in fact would be worried that lots of the bad guys would carry on having guns and so there's a question about whether an amnesty in fact would be would be um, practical and indeed appear credible or you could go in with force and just forcibly remove all these guns and then you're going to be sparking perhaps not a civil war, I think, but certainly a large number of local outbreaks of violence. And then things really would get worse before they get better. And I think it's a very strategically tricky issue for politicians, because, of course, what you'd say is, well, if you wanted to solve it, you wouldn't start from from here. But, of course, they they are starting from here. I mean, guns are so endemic in in parts of that society, even though many people don't, don't have guns at all, but in parts of it, people are so frightened about it. As you mentioned, you know, Michael Moore, who's bonding for Columbine, I think, um, in, that, in that film, people are so frightened about the violence that that, that that itself will motivate people. So, in fact, it's quite a tricky strategic, strategic issue, I think, for national and federal politicians and lawmakers, even if they think this is, you know, we, we need to repair this. You know, how exactly do you go, to, go about doing it? There is a real difference, <clears throat> a real distinction between different kinds of guns being available. I mean, pretty much everyone who lives in the countryside in New Zealand, has an air rifle or similar with which they shoot possums because possums are an invasive species and they're trying to get rid of them. So, you know, guns are commonplace there, but not assault rifles. And it's assault rifles that are doing the damage because because of their power, the, the, the potency and the frequency of the bullets they fire, they can do a lot more damage than an air rifle can. And that's what's being used to perform most of these massacres, including this latest one. And it it should be, as people so often point out, it should be an absolute no-brainer that a weapon that is only of use in infantry battles, in warfare, that's what it's for, that such a weapon should not be in the hands of private citizens who who have no business engaging in military activities of that kind. That should be a no-brainer. But how to get even that change through in America it's very difficult. I think one of the big problems that's becoming very clear in America at the moment is that there's not only a blue state, red state divide, as there clearly is. There's also a state Washington divide. So the states, particularly places like Texas and Florida, are asserting their um, federal autonomy from Washington. They're doing what they like. They're closer to being a single society. But if you think about how gun reform happened in Australia and in Britain, in both Australia and Britain, what happened was there was one terrible massacre. In Britain, it was Duff Lane. Um, I'm not sure what it was in Australia. I forget the name. But there was one terrible massacre. And there was a reaction of revulsion across society to that. And on the back of that wave of revulsion, strict laws were passed in both places and are still in place. And it, by the way, one of the chief people who objected to the post Dunblane legislation in chirpy cheeky Collins in The Spectator, was a certain Boris Johnson. He was on the wrong side of the fence even back then. He's always on the wrong side of the bloody fence. But anyway, for it to be possible that a wave of revulsion 
in a society should lead to legislation, which is then strictly adhered to. We haven't had a gun massacre since Dunblane, thank God, in Britain. For that to be possible, then you have to have a coherent society. And America is not a coherent society. Even Texas or Florida or California isn't a coherent society, although they're closer to it. And so we come back again to the, the thing I started by saying, that what words that are written on, on paper are never going to affect social change all on their own. It, there is a difference between having the right words and the wrong words on the pieces of paper, but you need the society itself to have the sense that it needs to change and to put that feeling into practice. And it's hard to see how that could happen, even in a single American state. Legislation was passed in New Zealand only a few years ago, restricting... Um, After the Christchurch massacre. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the government was was re-elected. And I think that's kind of an interesting lesson for Americans, because I think there is a fear that if you uh, oppose the uh, Second Amendment, that's the end of your political career. But... Actually, that's not necessarily the case. But, I, I, you know, Simon, you're absolutely right. Um, actually, what steps you take and how long it takes is, is not as simple as it appears to be. I mean, obviously, the, um, the American Rifle Association, I mean, they have so much money and the lobby is so powerful that maybe the root of the problem is not the guns itself, but the money that goes into the pol into politics. And that could, you know, it happens to be guns, but it could be anything. Uh, but obviously that, that's, a, that's a much bigger issue. And that's even more difficult to, um, to solve. Maybe some numbers would, would shed some light on the cause of, of all of this. And I, it's not that I carry these numbers around in my head, but I, I, I did, did some research before we started recording. In 2019, which was mid-Trump, it's important, I think, to, to remember. 60% of the country favoured stricter gun laws, 93% wanted universal background checks, and 80% of the country, or polled, those polled, approved of red flag laws, right? So you have this overwhelming preference for stricter gun laws. The problem was it was not the, it, like issue salience, right? So in a Gallup poll of the same year, 1% of Americans ranked gun control as the most important problem facing the country. But for 27% of Americans, it was immigration, and then it was poor leadership, poor governmental leadership, and then race relations and racism were the, were, were the other two most salient issues. So I think, yes, the NRA, I mean, it's a hugely powerful lobby, and every time sort of gun control looms its head, they, they come in, and that will only serve, I'm sure, to sort of push salience for the issue down. But I think those numbers, for me, point to much broader sort of social issues are, again i guess around the concept of anime right it's it's just not important for politicians to pursue these issues in the legislature because when it comes around to the to the ballot no no one cares enough about these issues to vote on one of these you know to, to vote for their representative who campaigns on these issues when instead if they throw their hat into the ring in the pretty toxic sort of immigration debates that go on they're going to garner much more attention yeah yes i mean it's it's difficult to make these issues salient in the same way to various groups of people because people are so divided on the issue i i recently read something just just yesterday i read something which was suggesting that the the gun industry in America actively looking for extremes of violence and outrage because there are opportunities to sell more guns. And so a thing that is now happening in America is that people like Trump, who are deliberate troublemakers, they're deliberately stirring up controversy and division and hatred 
in everything they say they're doing that. And this helps people sell guns because people get more afraid. And when they're afraid, they go out and buy a gun. And every time, I'm sad to say, every time gun control comes up the agenda, you will get queues around the block in places like Texas and Florida of people going out to buy a new gun because they're worried that the government is going to take their guns. It's that extraordinary. It's that crazy. And how do we get back from there? Well, it's very difficult. And like I say, it takes it takes years to grow a tree and only 30 seconds to chop it down. And that's the kind of asymmetry we're dealing with. We need a society which is just differently shaped, has different values, doesn't think in that way. And you can't produce that just like that. Thanks all three of you uh, for discussing that very um, difficult issue. Let's um, uh, pause there uh, and we'll see you in the next part. We'll be thinking about recent parliamentary debates about gender. And welcome back. On Monday, the UK Parliament debated whether to make non-binary gender identities legally recognised. There's also a debate to come on conversion therapy. Um, Sophie Grace, you brought this to our attention. Do you want to say a little bit more about it, please? Very happy to, Simon. So a thing that happens now in British politics, which didn't used to happen, is that we have debates in Parliament as a result of petitions, if those petitions cross a certain threshold of signatories. And the threshold is 140,000. And there was a petition um, on the UK government site, petition.parliament.uk, about non-binary. And there, there is, I think it's still open, another petition about transgender conversion therapy. Now, these two issues are separate from each other. And that's part of what I want to emphasise about them, that they are separate issues. I'll just read the, because it's quite short, the petition that's now closed about non-binary, which was debated the other day in Parliament. And it says, the petition is to make non-binary a legally recognised gender identity in the UK, have non-binary be included as an option under the Gender Recognition Panel and Gender Recognition Certificate, in order to allow those identifying as non-binary to be legally seen as their true gender identity, as well as having non-binary be seen as a valid transgender identity. End of quote. That's what the petition says. Now, I'll start with this one then. I think that the petition is um, not actually, legally speaking, that well written. There is some space in UK law for the notion of gender identity, but the notion of gender identity is controversial in law. And there's an argument which I would want to make um, that gender identity is is not always the best way to talk about these matters because um, it can lead people to think that we're talking about something called gender identity ideology, which is a great preoccupation of certain portions of the British press. But actually, I think it's almost entirely a red herring, at least when we're discussing transgender. You can talk about transgender without having, and you can talk sensibly about transgender without having any substantive notion of gender identity at all. But anyway, in the case of non-binary, which as I say, I'm going to start with, what the petition is asking for is essentially a third marker on passports, identity documents, and the like. So instead of having just the alternatives M and F to tick, you have a third box, which perhaps says N, M, F, N, where N is for non-binary. And this is for people who, of whom there are an increasing number, who see themselves as in what they are and who they are and how they want to express and articulate their identity in society. They don't want people to see them either as male or as female. 
Now, here's what I think we should say about this. This is a way that people are. It's a way that people um, have become more aware of. It's become more socially available because of the internet, because of more discussion of these matters. But there really are people who do not wish to be identified with either gender. They want to be seen, as they often put it themselves, just as themselves and not as a man or a woman. And this can often go hand in hand with something which is a key theme of a lot of the people who see themselves as against transgender or against gender identity theory. The key theme is that gender is inherently oppressive and that we don't want to see ourselves as women because seeing ourselves as women is buying into a kind of historic oppression. We don't want to see ourselves as men either because buying into that is seeing ourselves as part of an oppressing class and we don't want to do that either. So often people's motives for wanting to be non-binary are partly political, but it's always, it's always, I think, whether or not it's political, it's always personal. And for some people, it causes them real pain to be seen as what they do not understand themselves as being, as they do not, they do not find it comfortable or acceptable to be defined by the category of male or female. Now that, as I say, is a way some people are. And in a democratic society where we're committed, as I believe we should be, I I think our base commitment should be a commitment to allow people to be the best versions of themselves that they can possibly be. I keep saying this in podcasts and the like, what I'm against above all is the wastage of human beings. What I'm against above all is the waste of human potential. And I think human potential is wasted if people are allowed to be caught in this kind of social categorization that they're not happy with and that they want to break free from. So essentially, I view it as about human liberation. There are people who want to see themselves as neither male nor female. They want to use the pronoun they, usually, as a singular of themselves. And I can see no reason why society should not allow this. But what we had um, when this was discussed in Parliament as a motion coming from the people, so to speak, was a disgracefully bigoted debate where, for a start, people were conflating the whole issue with the issue of transgender, which is a separate issue that we'll come on to in a minute, and where a lot of MPs were saying things like, if your children come out with this kind of nonsense, then you should just resist it. You as a parent should stand strong against this trendy nonsense, which seems to me a woefully ignorant and unkind thing to say about other people whom you clearly don't understand and have not done any work to try and understand. And so I I thought I had to switch off the debate because it was annoying and upsetting me too much. But what I saw of it was was woeful and hopeless. And the only MP who spoke in any way adequately to the issue that the petition was raising was, I thought, Kirsten Oswald, who I'm glad to say is of my own party, the SNP. So, I mean, the general moral to draw from this debate, I think, is that there's now a real disconnect between Parliament and the society of which they're supposed to be the governors, the legislature. They don't understand what their own society is is saying and doing. They don't understand important popular movements that are going on out there. They have no sympathy for them. They want to stop them, basically. And in particular, they're way out of touch with the young people in our society. And it seems to me that there might be some kind of political reckoning at hand. It seems to me that a hard rain might be about to fall, um, as it has just fallen in Australia, where, in my view, something parallel has happened. There has been a bigoted and backward 
elite in power who are out of touch with their society. And thank God we still have elections, more or less. Thank God there's still some vestige of deliberative democracy. They swept them aside at the elections and hooray for that. So similar comments, I think, arise from the other issue, which is still open, which is about transgender conversion therapy. So here, the issue is that the government um, has been begged by all the professional bodies working in counselling and psychotherapy in the UK. All of them have said that we need a conversion therapy ban. What's conversion therapy? Well, conversion therapy is a deliberate attempt by psychiatric or counselling or in religious contexts, prayer and prayer and ministry means it's a deliberate attempt to change someone's sexual orientation or, and I, here I think I do have to use the phrase, or their gender identity. So you get someone who says that they're gay um, and you say to them, no, you're not. You're not gay. You're just mistaken about that. You have these sinful urgings towards people of the same sex, but that's because of something that went wrong in your early youth and we can fix it. And then either a certain kind of psychiatrist comes in and says, um, well, here's how I'm going to fix it. We'll do this therapy. Um, in the past, sometimes it was the immensely cruel procedure of electroconvulsive therapy or aversion therapy. So you're, you're being given electric shocks to the brain to stop you being gay, or you're being given um, negative stimuli. You know, you're, you're given a copy of a magazine of all these, these ripped young dudes. And as you look through, with all the pictures of the ripped young dudes, each time you see a ripped young dude, um, you get a tiny electric shock, and this is supposed to stop you having a thing about ripped young dudes. It doesn't work. It's cruel. It leads to immense harm, and it's premised upon the assumption that there's something wrong with being gay. That's conversion therapy, and of course it's particularly atrocious. It's particularly harmful when it's applied by uh, authority figures, middle-aged professional psychotherapists to vulnerable young people, school children, adolescents, people like that. So all the psychiatric societies, including the one of which I used to be a governor, the BACP, are saying, ban this, this must not happen. And they're saying ban it for trans people too, because what happens with trans people like me is, um, I, I went through counselling a while back, we go to a counsellor and we explore our own sense that although I was born biologically a male and brought up biologically a male, that was always something that I was deeply uncomfortable with. I was not happy in my own skin. I wished uh, in lots of ways that I could live as a woman and be recognised as a woman. And that in the end, it's, 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 it's important for people who aren't trans to understand how deep it goes and how very difficult it is to get away from that longing to be recognised in the other gender from the one you were born in. It's something that becomes all-consuming. It leads a lot of people, if it's repressed or if they deny it, it leads them to self-harm, to all sorts of psychological damage. So the proposal was that conversion therapy should be banned for trans people as well as for gay people, and as well as not having counsellors coming along and saying, well, well, you think you're same-sex attracted, but we think that's because of some childhood trauma. We think we can fix that and put that right. Similarly, we would not have people saying to trans people, well, you think that uh, you were born in the wrong body, to use a phrase that people often use, or that although you you were brought up as a boy, you should be um, a girl, a woman, in some sense, you should be in the other gender, the other sex, and you want to live that way. But this is because of some trauma that you've undergone. You don't really think that. 
we're going to explain to you why not, and we're going to fix you so that you lose these trans longings. And that too is grossly manipulative, and it's a kind of gaslighting, that is to say, it's telling someone that they don't really know what in fact they do know, and that there is somebody here who understands them better than they understand themselves. And what the government has done um, in its recent legislation, after many years and much foot-dragging, the government has banned conversion therapy for gay people, but not banned it for trans people. In the case of gay people, they've only banned it for non-consenting over 18-year-olds, which is actually not banning conversion therapy at all. Because, of course, the whole point of conversion therapy in practice is that you inveigle someone, you get them to agree to have this psychological manipulation done on them. And their consent is far from autonomous, it's far from pure. And I, I have myself in church contexts, at times in the past when I was trying to fight this side of myself, I have myself sought out what was effectively conversion therapy, both for the fact that I'm um, bisexual and also for the fact that I'm trans. And it didn't work, and it screwed me up, and it was it was a farce, it was a mess. But the government is saying we'll ban trans, we'll ban gay conversion therapy for under 18s in cases for all under 18s and for anybody over that age who doesn't consent to it. But they haven't banned trans conversion therapy at all. Why not? Because they said, oh, we have concerns and it's all very complicated. And that, I think, is giving in to a lot of dog whistles, which are coming from people who are at a point on the spectrum about these issues, where although they um, recognise the reality of people being gay, being homosexual, they don't think that trans is a real thing. So they come out with slogans like, there's no such thing as a trans kid, for example, which is complete nonsense. There is such a thing as a trans kid. I was one. These people think that the whole trans phenomenon has been manufactured. Sometimes they actually come out with it and say explicitly that they think this is an anti-Semitic Sorry, they think this is a Semitic plot. This is powerful Jewish people campaigning to pervert Western society. There are people who actually say that, extraordinary though it may seem. More generally, there's a claim that big, powerful figures in the pharmaceutical industry are manipulating things so that there is a, a trans craze, a trans trend, a trans fad, and lots of young people are being misled in this way. And that is the kind of concern concern, perhaps in scare quotes here, that the government is pandering to when they say that trans uh, conversion therapy is more complicated than gay conversion therapy, and therefore they won't ban it. So this petition, which is to be debated, I'm not optimistic about how well it will be debated, is about banning trans conversion therapy too. And that's a good thing. Actually, I don't think the petition goes far enough, because the government has not really banned even gay conversion therapy, and they should be banning both. That's what the psychiatric societies and professional bodies are telling them to do. That's what other countries have done. That's what the UK should do. Hey, thanks very much, uh, Sophie Grace. Uh, there's lots in there. Uh, Vittorio, Chris, have you got any thoughts about the issue? I mean, this is a slightly different issue, um, but I'm kind of curious if people know the reason why every time we fill in a form, they ask for our name, um, our date of birth, and then our gender. And it's so unnecessary. It's a sort of thing that I've never thought about until very recently when someone highlighted that to me. And it really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, the name and the uh, date of birth are necessary to identify that you are who you say you are. But why ask for the gender? So, I mean, that, that should just be wiped out. I mean, that should never 
have been there, but there must be some historic reason why it's there. And I just wonder if someone knows what it is, but it's baffling. I, I take it it's, it's simply for ease of recognition to whoever is in front of the douanier or passport controller or whatever. It's, it's simply to help them recognize. It's, it's like giving your height. I mean, heights change over the course of life and not only before you finish growing. Um, your height does change with curvature of the spine and so forth, but it's, it's just another thing that people can use to recognize you. And I imagine since it, in the past in particular, it was one of the most salient markers. You know, in, in 1900, the difference between a man and a woman was very, very salient indeed. I, I think it's just for identity marking reasons, but I agree with you, Vittorio. I mean, my own inclination would be to take M, F, and N all off the passport. They don't need to be on the passport. And likewise with the birth certificate, actually. As I said in a previous episode, although I mangled it slightly, something my daughter often says, I don't know, she presumably got it from Pinterest or somewhere, is that tradition is peer pressure from one's ancestors. Yes, exactly. We, we had the census in Ireland a couple of months ago. And um, surprisingly and, and disappointingly, under gender, it was binary. It was M or F and nothing else. And a lot of people raise that. And, and I'm pretty sure the next time it's going to be different because it really seemed so out of touch. Mm. And, um, and I said, you know, it's disappointing because actually Ireland um, has made huge strides and it's become quite progressive. And so just to, you know, in the census, just to have that choice between M and F and nothing else was just well, very odd. In, in a census, I think, I mean, I think identity documents that you present at the barrier or the passport control, I think it's one thing. I think in that context, M, F, N are all unneeded, actually. In a census, I'm not so sure. I mean, here's a slogan that people on the other side of a lot of these arguments from me like to use. They like to use the slogan, sex matters. They like to use the slogan, biology matters. Now, in a census, one of the things that you're doing is trying to make provision for future healthcare needs. It is a fact uh, which I have never tried to deny, and I don't think any transgender advocate ever tries to deny, it is a fact that those with male physiologies and those with female physiologies have different medical needs and are subject to different medical risks. So in a census, I think there is a strong case for retaining a question about biological sex, um, provided you give scope for people who are non-binary to express that, provided you give scope for people who are trans to express that. But yeah, when we're, when we're planning healthcare, I think we do need to know who was born a woman and who was born a man. We also need to know who is now living a transgender life. Because, for example, um, taking hormones to change your appearance, to make yourself more um, stereotypically female or male, that is not the big health risk that it's sometimes painted as being, but it does have healthcare consequences. And it's important to get those in, in the picture too. So actually, Vittorio, I think with the census, we should have um, indications about it. No, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, it was disappointing that there wasn't an option for other or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got yeah. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments? I, I'm just enjoying listening to... Uh, Sophie Grace talk about this. I thought that I had actually Sophie Grace just just um, just addressed, which was you know wh why is the government interested in gender at all? And 
I mean, okay, so let, let me maybe expand on that a, a little bit, if I could be so grand as to say from the continent, for, let's say from the philosophy of difference perspective, right? But difference precedes identity rather than the other way around. And so it's sort of taken for granted then that each of us are equal only to the extent that we're all different from each other and such that identity is helpful and facilitative, um, but never sufficient enough to um, actually express sort of who we are. And given that, it's almost somewhat interesting in and of itself that at the moment, one's identity seems to be quite as important a sort of social issue and a political issue as, as it is at the moment. Because one thing we know is not the case is that you don't need to focus upon identity in order to understand oppression. You could focus on class, for example, in order to understand oppression. Now, you're not going to capture some form of oppression with a focus on class, as you might through a focus upon identity, but at least there are other ways of, of, of doing that. It's not a necessary uh, and sufficient sort of criteria. And so why we focus upon identity at the moment in particular is, 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 is I think, of, in, of, of interest. What was really helpful a moment ago was, you know, when um, Sophie Grace, you sort of explained that, OK, we, we might need still a focus upon gender um, in order to understand that there are some people who undergo hormone treatment. But I wonder, just as a thought, do we, it, particularly on the census then, to, sex seems to be a categorization of medical importance. Something else that might be of medical importance is the question, are you undergoing hormone uh, treatment? That means that the focus upon gender is a proxy for that question. Would then the sort of the material practice there that somebody is undergoing not be a more important question than the focus upon identity? And I, I don't say that because identity is unimportant, but for at least from a philosophy of difference perspective, it's of subsequent importance to looking at material facts like oppression and whether or not somebody's undergoing horm hormone therapy or something like that. So I guess my political question is, and I make this very hesitantly, are questions like should gender be on uh, should 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 non-binary be on a gender recognition act? Possibly, again, hesitantly. <laughs> Uh, leading down a garden path that might not be as helpful to addressing material concerns about things like safety or healthcare and things like that, whereas other ways of addressing those issues might not, in fact, be more more helpful to the people that desire that 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 help. Yeah, as as usual, it doesn't have to be either or. Mm -hmm. We can and should ask both about uh, gender, the gender that people are living in, and the sex that they were born in, and. We, we can either ask or make statistical projections about the kinds of treatments that people who are transgender might have along the way in order to to live um, as they as they're happy and comfortable living. So one might not need on the census to ask intrusive questions, potentially intrusive questions about are you on hormones, that kind of thing. But you could combine what the census gives you about how many transgender people there are who are living openly in their preferred gender. You can combine that with further surveys about what percentage of transgender people go for hormones and what percentage don't, and what percentage go of those who go for hormones also go for surgery, um, either facial or genital or whatever, in order to uh, get themselves into a way of living that they're comfortable with. So given those statistics, you can work out some, some figures that will help you in healthcare planning, and 
There's there's nothing malign or unkind in, in doing any of this. On the contrary, it's simply good planning. It's it's the kind of foresight the state is there to exercise. So all of that can be done. And by um, in a state where the state is listening to its minorities, that will happen. But what we have at the moment is a state which is increasingly not listening to anyone at all, irrespective of their gender or sexual identity or preferences or any of that. The, the state just isn't listening to anyone. And the state is particularly not listening to young people who are most on the ball with these kind of issues. And it's deeply frustrating and deeply angering to watch this. And once again, trans people become the political football. I mean, the, the amount of attention that the right-wing press, the Times, the Mail, the Spectator, uh, the Telegraph focus on people like me is, is just extraordinary. And the sheer hostility of the coverage is just extraordinary. And in America, of course, it's worse to come back to America. This is one of the wedge issues. This is one of the divisive issues. And the the party of freedom, the Republican Party, are now in the position of banning books in libraries, burning books because they even so much as mention transgender people and forcibly detransitioning young people who are currently getting hormone therapy to deal with their gender dysphoria. They've taken that away which is detransitioning these people, and it's immensely cruel. And you do end up thinking, who is actually served by all this cruelty? Who does it help? And it's a political gimmick. And what the Australian election gave me above all was a hope that it might be a misguided gimmick, and that actually, this isn't how people feel. Because that's certainly not my experience. My experience is that the UK is quite a hostile person to be trans these days. And when I go out, I go out a little bit forewarned and forearmed and expecting perhaps hostility. But by and large, what I get back from ordinary people is, well, we don't know much about the kind of person that you seem to be, but live and let live. Um, hey, it's interesting to have diversity in the world, a kind of shrug of the shoulders. You know, fine, that's you. Let's carry on. That's what I get from a lot of people. And that doesn't seem to be what the media think should be the response. They, they, they seem to want people to hate trans people. And by and large, people don't. I think the media are absolutely on the wrong page here. And I hope that the media and the government who seem to listen to the media, even though they don't listen to the, the people at large, I hope they're riding for a fall because, frankly, they deserve one. I agree entirely. And to borrow it to the term that you used earlier, it's, it's shameful, the, the media coverage of, of, of trans issues. Because on the one hand, the argument is often made that you know, there's so much change being demanded by such a small number of people that, um, you know, really they should go back in their box and and not make such grandiose changes. Whereas, of course, in fact, that the changes desired are, in fact, not enormous changes in the relatively minor changes to some documents that people resent filling in anyway. Um, and the fuss is caused by the newspapers and the press um, who have no idea what they're talking about much of the time and are not in fact listening to you know the academics or the advocacy groups or individuals themselves who are who are living the lives it's yeah it's utterly shameful and we we were so much better on all these issues in 2015 in 2015 the first time a gender recognition act um um a self id act was introduced at westminster it was introduced get this by two conservative mp's by maria miller and theresa gray theresa may sorry they are the people Gray is another name that we'll come to with later. They they were the people who introduced this, and it's just extraordinary how far we've gone back since then. Well, why is it though that it's a bit like the discussion we're we were having before about school shootings in America? I mean, we are 
outraged and it just seems so obvious that there should be gun control. And we all agree that this is outrageous and ridiculous, but that's that's the way things are. So why is it that I, I always find myself so out of touch with the rest of the world? And I why <laughs> wonder whether philosophy actually and all this philosophical reasoning is actually making me um, almost un- incapable of engaging with the real world. I mean, it's if you'd asked me, you know, is there correction therapy in the UK today? I'd have said, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, that's, <laughs> that can't be the case. So, so what's going on? I mean, why, why are we so out of touch? <laughs> <laughs> why are we philosophers so out of touch? Or- yeah. I, I don't know. I, th- I think I think it's difficult to get good information. And I mean, if you mean on this specific issue, Vittorio, then I, th- I think it is quite hard to get good information. People don't don't know where to look. And a lot of the voices in the debate, as it's recently been run in the UK, have, I have to be careful how I say this, but I think there's been a lot of misleading information put out, frankly. Um, for example, the, the idea that a self-ID act would erase women, would erase the category of women. That's like saying that if you recognise the category of adoptive parents, then you've erased the category of parents. Um, it's it's just completely untrue. It's utterly misleading. And, of course, I have no intention whatsoever of erasing any categories at all. And in particular, I don't want to erase the category of woman or man. And I'm perfectly happy to recognise that the primary sense of woman and man is biological and goes back to people being born with a certain anatomy. Of course it does, just as the primary sense of parent means that you are the biological progenitor of those you call your children. You have DNA in common with them in a, in a particular way, and a particular process, gestation and birth, is what led you to be a parent. That doesn't mean that there can't be adoptive parents. I, I come back quite often to this adoption analogy, which I and some others, for example, Charlotte Witt in the US, have proposed. And it seems to me a good way of thinking about transgender. We're we're not saying that uh, you have to give up the category of woman as we have it, or the category of man as we have it. We are saying that there's room for conceptual flexibility, for conceptual engineering here. And whether we're prepared to engage in that conceptual engineering, to think about these new and slightly off-kilter cases, whether we're prepared to think about them is is a test of whether we are prepared to be inclusive, actually, as a society. My my children are adopted, so I know exactly where you're coming from. And I actually think it's a very good analogy. Just some thoughts from me. So I've often thought that possibly the, the at least a, the dullest name for a subfield I could come up with is the philosophy of classification or the philosophy of categorization. <laughs> but in fact, I, I've, I've, I've much thought that actually a lot of what I do is is that. <laughs> and in fact, it's not dull at all. In fact, it has very clear, uh, I mean, it's kind of in, you know, philosophically interesting, but it actually has huge amounts of real world consequences. And, and my, my main thought is that this this discussion over the last half an hour just, just shows that you know, in spades, because I mean, that there's reasons to classify, categorize, group, particular individuals together because we see similarities right and there's there's reasons for doing that and as we saw there might be you know real world implications when you're taking a census and grouping people as male or female or and in this case non-binary but sometimes you can 
you know, come up with a, therefore a group category. And, and as Chris said, you know, but people are, are different. And so people then get shoehorned into a, into a category that they don't feel altogether comfortable with or indeed, you know, completely reject. But other people have said you have to be there for, for particular purposes. And in fact, so this is, you know, how coarse-grained and how fine-grained categories should be for whatever purpose is, is immensely interesting. I mean, both abstract and also practically, and this is just, you know... And it's one of the oldest topics in philosophy. I mean, the, to, to cover this adequately, we'd have to start with Plato's Sophist and Aristotle's Categories, which are both books in, in different ways about precisely this kind of issue. And the idea that these issues are just abstract and dry, they most certainly are abstract issues, but they're also live political ones. Um, I mean, I spent my childhood with people saying to me, you are a boy, and finding myself wanting to resist that in some way that I didn't fully understand myself, and being deeply unhappy with being categorised that way and wanting to rebel against it. And and so, yeah, I mean, categorization is one of the key things that human beings do with the world around them, and it can be oppressive or it can be liberatory. I'm tempted to blame Kant for <laughs> this, and, and, and maybe Chris will agree that we should be post-Kantians. <laughs> Well, I have to declare an interest in sort of this bit um, in sort of Simon's philosophy of identity. I mean, half my PhD was on um, sort of the extent to which either identity or sets can be used to properly understand the world and like how how sufficient they are. And it was it was a PhD on on the concept of resistance and trying to sort of break away from a dialectical form of resistance against something that's identified. And you know, can you do it differently? Um, so I, I might not say post post Kantian, but I, I might say post structuralist. Um, <laughs> to throw a cheap support for the team, um, in the sense that you know I think you can make a plausible case to say that structures have structures, and uh, and thus we need to understand the development of identities according to which we we, we know ourselves and know the the, the the world. Which is why I found this conversation really interesting because both by virtue of the fact that I've never really had to consider my identity. I've never, in the sense that I've never felt like I've had to consider my identity. Um, I lived for a, for a, for about a year in Japan, where my identity as a gaijin was all too obviously um, expressed to me. So okay, so that's what I was. Otherwise, I am um, straight white guy, and again, that gets presented to me quite a quite a lot as well. So I've never really felt felt like I had to. But also from the sort of the philosophy that I've read, yeah, identity has always been subsumed into a whole. Uh, sort of under a whole bunch of other different issues like oppression and sort of material force and questions about power relations and things like that. Yeah, so I guess I'm I'm, I'm just riffing here. For for me, I, I still find it very, very interesting that people desire to root a whole bunch of significance and importance around an identity which seems both malleable and, you know, contextualized all at the same time. Uh, so I, I found this very interesting. I, I'm always pleased, of course, when a discussion ends in the conclusion that Kant was wrong. I mean, <laughs> but, but actually, actually, I think we should make a distinction between the actual historical Kant and the possible hypothetical Kant, because uh, the central move in Kant's whole philosophy, as far as I can see, is to say, look, <clears throat> how we categorize and describe the world is an exercise of reason, but it's an exercise of free reason. And it's us generating the categorizations. The categorizations are not there in the nature of things, or if they are, it wouldn't matter. We couldn't get hold of them. Um, the only way we can do categorization, never mind what's out there, 
is from inside us. So it's us doing the categorizing. It's us understanding the world. We have this power, sapere aude, dare to be wise. It's us doing the categorization of the world, and it is a free exercise of rationality. So, the, I mean, the actual Kant is the one who is against women and blacks and masturbation, as we know. But the, 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 the hypothetical Kant could be a Kant who says, well, actually, we come to the world and we come specifically to ethics with our powers of reason, and we always need to exercise judgment in how we divide the world up. And doing that can be, once again, liberatory rather than oppressive. Kant could be a good guy. On that um, positive note, let's uh, just end things there. And uh, we'll see you in the next segment when we'll be appalled at our behaviour, which we knew nothing about. And welcome back. Uh, we're just going to have a, a last segment where we combine two recent news items. Uh, hello to all our friends in Australia. As we know, last weekend uh, there was a general election and uh, the Labour Party was elected to form what seems at the moment a minority government. And then in the UK, uh, we have seen uh, finally the release of the fabled Sue Gray report on the events in Number 10 and Partygate, and both of them are interesting events, and I think putting them together is also very interesting. We haven't talked very much about Australia on the pod recently, so I thought it might be a good idea to, to do so. We have talked about Partygate before. Uh, as I just said before we started recording, I'm at danger of working myself into another froth or lather, as the Daily Mail might have it today, um, so I better uh, not say too much apart from I think it's absolutely despicable that there we are. Chris, Vittorio, Sophie Grace, any thoughts from you on either of those two news items? Well, I'm, I'm, ju I'm just losing the will to pay attention to the whole saga in number 10. I'm, I'm just, my, my attention is, is slipping because I'm just thinking, you know, where is your shame? I mean, I come back to this theme of shame that I keep talking about today. If you won't be ashamed of this behaviour, if you don't think that this is enough, uh, to show that you you ought to be retreating, you ought to be resigning, then what the heck does it take, Mr. Johnson? What the heck does it take to get you to acknowledge that this simply isn't good enough? And I, I do think, to sound another note that I've also been sounding, um, I do think that there is a serious risk of a complete breakdown of the system here, because the system does rely in the end upon people's sense of shame, upon people's ability to say, my position is untenable. I mean, that perhaps is an interesting word to think about, untenable. What is it for a political position to be untenable? Boris Johnson seems to be testing the limits, the outer limits of, of, of position tenability. And it's. I think it's a deeply worrying sight because I think it actually threatens whole swathes of our public institutions and our public life. And I too am in danger of going off on one here, so I'll stop. I'm I'm the only non-Brit in the room, I believe. So, um, what's it like out there, Vittorio? Looking in, well, what's it like what? I I lived in England in the 1980s and 90s, and I used to be an Anglophile. And at the time, <laughs> the press used to um, um, I mean, they, they had a great time making fun of. Italian politics and Berlusconi and the bonga bonga stuff. And, you know, all those things would only happen 
in you know less civilized places or less sophisticated places like Italy and and I bought into that actually and then you know you you read about 4 a.m wine being thrown onto walls and vomiting in into workplaces and and so I'm kind of wondering um either those things have always happened that, that that's been a constant and I was just too stupid not to see it or something has changed in the British political system and it's kind of broken the way that it wasn't broken before i don't know which one it is but either one is kind of it's kind of sad because you know england and the british press and it, they used to have moral high ground that they can't have anymore and you know what i'm in europe you guys are not <laughs> i wish i could join you and one of, one of the reasons why I switched from being opposed to Scottish independence to being in favour of Scottish independence is given away by the time when I switched. It was 4am on the 24th of June, 2016. And to me, it is, I mean, it's not only about Europe, it is also about the autonomy of Scotland to make its own decisions. But to me, getting back in Europe into the EU is an absolute priority because I, I really do think that England in particular and the UK to a lesser extent is slipping away from the norms of liberal democracy because, partly because we're outside the EU. There's so much wrong with the EU too, but I, I was never an uncritical adherent to the EU. I, I just think it's obviously correct for us to be in it. And I think, I, I mean, I, I wish I could move to Ireland or I wish Scotland would move back into the EU. I wish something would happen. So I was I, I listened to the, the, the moral maze and um, there was a debate on sort of political standards um, on, on one of the recent episodes. And um, one of the witnesses made the argument that actually politicians have kind of always lied in um, in, in, in Britain, in fact, in, in, in everywhere. And it's one of the sort of necessary prerequisites of the job uh, almost to, to do so. And then you get a little bit of, you know, power hungry glee from the ability to do so and so kind of everyone has and I, I i don't know whether or not that's 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 correct but um they seem to know what they're talking about the the, the change if 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 that is the case that i see though is that it it seems to me that it used to be the case that if you were caught out cheating and lying then you'd quit uh, at some stage and you'd, you'd resign whereas um johnson hangs on like a bad smell and seems utterly convinced that like everything is going to wash over him though did we ever not think that johnson was like this it, it this seems like surprisingly unsurprising you know this is a guy who wrote two letters in favor of uh regarding brexit and you know published one depending on which way the wind uh, blew you know all of the things that he used to write in the spectator when he was an editor you know flagrant racism etc 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 right so what's interesting is it, it, it's a bit like Trump, right? I, you almost can't blame him for being like he is, right? There's this great line in Nietzsche where he says, you can't, it's natural for the lambs to begrudge the birds of prey, but you can't blame, blame a bird of prey for being a bird of prey any more than you can blame the lamb for, uh, for being a lamb, right? And so, you know, Johnson is who he is, and we've kind of always known it. What I find most dispiriting about the whole affair is that he got voted in. Right. So there's a whole bunch of the Conservative Party who um, actually 
think that he has virtues higher than any of the other virtues that anyone else in the Conservative Party might show um, as, a, as a leader. I mean, that says that says a lot, right? Who would be the replacement for Johnson? Would it be Liz Truss? You know, <laughs> podcast <laughs> listeners won't be able to see the faces of <laughs> everybody uh, in front of me. Um, so that, that's that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is um, the Conservative Party have, I, I've lost count, how many elections have they won um, in a row? 20, and 2015, 2017, 2019, four. Thank you very much. So four elections, and which means that the British population, of course, the majority of people, you know, don't vote, vote for the political party that's in power, but, you know, they won more elections than the Labour Party, which means that a substantial part of the British electorate condones this behaviour. Why? That's, that's that's the question I think, you know, the substantive question that I think needs needs answering. Why do people believe that people like Johnson can act as if the law does not apply to them um, and they accept it? So I used to live with a guy. He was um, an elderly gentleman. He was a um, uh, he was a hedge fund manager. To say that we disagreed in our politics, I think, would be an understatement. But what I found was very interesting was that he took this attitude that, like, okay, this this ship needed to be steered, and in order for the ship to be steered, the captain can break the rules and do whatever he or she needs to do. And um, so, you know, that, that that gives us the answer: Britain has to get through the pandemic, so you can do what needs to be done in order to do that. The last time I was on, we were talking about what constituted legitimacy um, in in government. And it seems to me that like we've got a couple of different views of what uh, should be done, what what the goal of politics is in our country. And the Conservatives at the moment are playing on a goal of politics, which is legitimised by, you know, getting the country through as a unified whole, which is actually a sort of historic conservative value, the sort of notion of social totality, getting through, muddling through, something like that. So do we just need to accept maybe that the country is much more conservative than you know some of us might like it well, to be? I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to sound my I'm going to bang my S and P drum here and say which country uh, <laughs> standard retort from Scotland, Wales, and Ireland when people say the country. I think this is historically. I mean, it's, it's not like the other three, the the other two and a bit nations in the union don't have problems of their own. But I think this is historically largely an English problem. And um, here are two pieces of evidence about how the the culture, the tradition difference differs in England from the rest of the UK. And sorry if this seems to be starting from a rather distant point, but I'll, I'll, I'll get back to the point eventually, I promise. So two phenomena that interest me, Downton Abbey and the fact that the other day when the Elizabeth Line was opened in London, the comment that all the headlines had on the Elizabeth line was a line fit for a queen. And I want to unpack those two phenomena a little bit. So Downton Abbey is all about upstairs and downstairs, about the rich privileged people doing what the hell they like, and they're adoring underlings, they're adoring servants and retainers below stairs, support them in that and love them for that and and worship the ground they tread on in everything they do, no matter how dubious it may be. So that's Downton Abbey. And I do think there's a very strong streak of that mentality still in um, the way politics, particularly in England, is conducted. Then the Elizabeth line thing. I, I read that line and I thought, well, you know, you're making it sound like the Elizabeth line was built for the Queen and the rest of us are just there on sufferance. We're allowed to use this line, which is fit for her. And we underlings, we paupers, we get to use it too. Lucky us. 
I think there's an extraordinary amount of cringe involved in our deference to our supposed social betters. And I think that's what's going on a great deal of the time with Boris Johnson. I think there's this idea that, you know, them's the masters and they make their choices and, and we just tugs our forelocks and carry, carries on dwile flonking and whatever it is we peasants do. And I, I think it's extraordinarily unhealthy and extraordinarily regressive the way that we think about these things. And I grew up in England, and so I, I lived with these attitudes too. I internalised them to some extent. And you, you kind of need to get out of England and go to somewhere more implicitly Republican, like Scotland, to see, or, or Ireland maybe, Vittorio, to see how, how deep this goes and how pernicious it is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Just some, just some random comments from me. I mean... I don't know. I mean, I can get myself worked up into a froth and anger about Johnson, you know, even now. But in a way, going back to Chris's thoughts, in a way, I'm just despairing of him. I'm really, really angry at the moment in, you know, Conservative MPs, where we're at a stage in our unwritten constitution where the only people who can get rid of Johnson are the Conservative MPs. Uh, I mean, I mentioned this before on on the pod, you know, always... Think about Peter Hennessy, that celebrated constitutional historian who says, you know, the British constitution is based on the theory of good chaps. And often it is chaps, right? And clearly Johnson is not a good chap. But I mean, you know, as Chris said, you know, we never knew, we always knew he wasn't a good chap. But there need to be enough good chaps and, and uh, uh, chapettes, um, you know, in the Conservative Party. Who are going to <laughs> We're going to get rid of Johnson. And, you know, a shout out to Tobias Elwood yesterday, who stood up yeah. in Parliament and said, you know, basically this won't do and got heckled by his own by his own party. I mean, it's just extraordinary. So, you know, that's where my anger's, anger's uh, reserved. Um, listen, okay, can, I, can I just take us, I mean, we can just we froth any more comments because I want to go on to Australia if I can. Well, I, I, I wanted to say that I think part of what's going on with all this is an extraordinary disregard for the truth and when I arrived at Oxford as an undergraduate in 1984 I encountered types of people I'd never encountered before that of course was part of the point of going there as a product of Northern Grammar School and so I I was to some extent a tourist when I arrived at this very grand college in Oxford from rather grimy grammar school in Lancashire and I, I was in tourist mode I was going round. I was fascinated by the sociological diversity that I was now confronted with. And one of the things I encountered there for the first time was the phenomenon of particularly the public schoolboy who says things to get a rise out of you, who says things, and you, you can't tell whether they mean them or not. They say these outrageous things, like there are, there are far too many women in politics these days, they'll say, and look at you to see how you react. Or, or they'll say, well, I think we've given too much scope to um, black people in this country and it's, it's all getting rather out of hand, don't you think? They say these absolutely disgusting and outrageous things. And it didn't seem to be that they cared whether these things were true or false. They were just seeing how far they could push it. And I think what we've got now in Britain, because it's, it's actually the same people. I mean, Boris Johnson was a contemporary of mine at Oxford. It's the very same people doing the very same thing. And it, it's what um, is known, uh, thanks to Harry Frankfurt, as bullshitting. Yeah. Sodom. That's the... That's the uh... I mean, by which I mean S-O-D apostrophe E-N, E-M rather than S-O-D-O-M. Um, yeah, that, that, that's the sort of attitude I had when I went to Oxford, sod them, uh, and the attitude I have to them in politics at the moment. Um, <laughs> let's go on to Australia, though. Um, any thoughts about the recent Australian election? 
It's a great result. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm biased. Regular listeners may be surprised that this is uh, the attitude of, of one of the guests on this podcast. Go on, Vittorio. Well, I, I, I actually um, I work for the Labour Party in Ireland. I have, I have two um, elected positions in the party. So it actually means a lot to the Labour Party in Ireland that other Labour parties in the world uh, do well. So, you know, New Zealand did fantastically well. And I thought that was really important because it was kind of a reminder um, that what you do in politics, in leadership, actually matters. And if you do it well, you'll be rewarded. Um, And with Australia, well, if you screw up, you'll be punished. And there is a a sense of maturity there. I, I think, to, to be truthful, perhaps most of us were pleasantly surprised by the result in Australia. But nevertheless, it's, it's great to see that actually things can be different. And also to be reminded that, that actually what politicians do matters and they're not all the same. And I like to think that actually people will take politics more seriously. Whether this will translate in... The UK uh, remains to be seen. We live in hope, but then what else can we do? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, so I do, because my, my kids are both teenagers, and of course, you know, I know their friends as well, and I think of other kids at their age, and of course, I think of myself at, at their age growing up in the in the 80s. And I do feel very sorry for kids in the UK where they've got this class of politicians in front of them on screens or on the radio or, or you know, whatever, um, that this is what they're growing up with. <laughs> I mean, they're not as good as they used to be. I think that really is true. And of course, you know, just just then picking up on what you said, Vittorio, uh, it just shows that that, that there's there's some, there's a different possibilities here. I'm, I'm a Christian, um, a member of the Scottish Episcopalian Church, and I I sometimes think that I'm a Christian who's allergic to Christianity, at least to some manifestations of it, and. Just looking at, at Scott Morrison and other members of the, uh, the 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 coalition in Australia who identify as Christians, such as the the late and not lamented Tony Abbott, you you do as a Christian look at all this and think, you know, why does it come out so horrible? Apparently, you have this Christian faith, and that's all about protecting the widow and the orphan, and drawing in the stranger and loving all humanity. And that translates into politics as what? It's just extraordinary that people like Scott Morrison think that their faith licenses that kind of politics. I, I, I just find it very difficult to compute how people can behave like that when they claim to be Christians. And of course, that comment, you know, magnified a hundred times about what goes on in America. I just think it's so strange. I think there are a lot of people in the British, in the English Labour Party, I'll say, who feel the same way about the Labour Party. Uh, though, right? So one of the reasons why I, I, I agree with Vittorio that it's a moment for hope is, one, because my knowledge of Australian politics is lamentably bad, um, and therefore it's gr- I'm cards on the table. I'm a card-carrying Labour Party member myself, and so it's, it's great to see like a sister party uh, get elected there. But um, there are many within the, the Labour Party at the moment who are deeply concerned about what the Labour Party is, not only... Uh, that, but also how it has become what it is. So um, there are an inordinate number of people who are sort of being purged from within local branches of the Labour Party for a number of different reasons, largely 
as a result of their support for either Corbyn or some Corbyn policies uh, at the moment, um, and some of the ways that they've sort of resisted the takeover by uh, Starmer and, um, and and some of his supporters. Um, and then, yeah, who, who also just leave because of the sort of policy direction of the Labour Party as well. Um, so I find it I find it difficult um, to be too optimistic about and sort of certain that politics in in Australia will be any better than it is at the moment because I don't think that the name Labour Party at the moment stands with the same sort of ideological homogeneity that maybe it did sort of 30 or 40 years ago. Um, You know, Labour Party used to be a party of the working class. I don't think it is anymore, though partly that's as a result of what of the fact that it's not so clear anymore what the working class is in a deindustrialized um sort of progressively more automated society i think the working class starts to have different interests uh and you've now got a more fragmented working class in in um in sort of developed economies and so there's this i i think sort of identity crisis within labor parties I'll use the plural that it's i think difficult for the for the labor parties to sort of bridge that was um shown i think in the last general election in in the uk where um the tories got so many of the you know namely red wall uh, constituencies and when individuals were interviewed they said well you know it's because they're offering things like free internet when um we don't know how we're going to pay our bills next year and I think that's demonstrative of this like ideological sort of rupture that exists within the Labour Party. So, yeah, it's great. I think that Labour now was elected in, in Australia. But I think whether or not that's of material benefit, I think will largely depend on whether or not they can deal with a progressively more automated neoliberal society than when they were, you know, used to be successful. I'm, I'm very glad that I'm not in the Labour Party myself, so that I have to choose between Starmer and Corbyn. I find, I, I think, I, I'm afraid, I, I think, although I'm, I'm probably politically to the left of Corbyn, um, I think he's possibly not left-wing enough for me. Um, I think that Corbyn has clearly um, gone past his sell-by date. He's, he's done things which I think expose his judgment as very, very poor. But on the other hand, opposed to him in the Labour Party politics, you've got Starmer, whose main policy at the moment seems to be based on Napoleon's adage, never interrupt your enemy when he is in the business of making a mistake. Now, long term, that might be a fruitful strategy, and that might be the right strategy. But it's an extremely frustrating strategy, precisely because, Chris, I I think I disagree with you to some extent about the working class. I think there very clearly is a working class in something. And I think it's more like it used to be in the 1930s or whenever, than it has been for some time. There clearly is an underclass now in Britain of people who cannot cannot get by by working hard and doing what they can to support their families. Um, that well-known category, hard-working families in Britain now, they are really having a catastrophically bad time because of the present government's neglect and insouciance and at times deliberate cruelty. So I, I, I think I, I would like to see someone in the British or English Labour Party, rise up, who represents their interests fair and square, and in a full-throated way, not in the rather mealy-mouthed and timid way that Starmer represents them. I'd, I'd like to hear a bit more, a bit more red, 
I'd like to see a bit more red in the Labour flag. I don't, I don't disagree with you that um, that there is a, a large and growing um, group of people um, like that. I guess um, in my mind, there are sort of two ways of, of describing class. Um, you can do it in the sort of old fashioned Marxist way, which I think I had in my head when I was describing sort of working class and then a sort of sociological sense where the, you know, the, the working class might, I, I sort of see that as how you were describing the, the sort of underclass in inverted commas thing. But for me, you know, the working class would encapsulate, I don't know, lecturers at the same time as well, because they don't control the uh, access to the mode of production and things like that and means of production. Uh, listen, I, I do think we should probably bring things to a close there. Thanks to all three of you for appearing and giving us your thoughts. Thanks, Chris, for coming on. Thank you very much. Yeah, lovely to be here again. And, and Vittorio? Thank you very much. And Sophie Grace? Thanks, it's been a pleasure. And thanks to you for listening and all be well. You'll listen to us again soon. Another philosophy takes on the news. Mm-hmm.